This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. If you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. We hope you'll come engage with our other listeners to talk about what's new, old, interesting, and film. You can find it all at patreon.com slash next picture show. That's patreon.com slash next picture show. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. You believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being. We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with Genevieve Kosky. Scott Tobias. And Tasha Robinson. We really didn't have to put a lot of thought into the pairing we'll be exploring in this episode and the next. A new Jurassic World movie meant a chance to talk about Jurassic Park, a film we had not covered yet, even though we have covered a lot of other films directed by Steven Spielberg. Genevieve, as our official record keeper, I think you have like a like a, a name tag for that and everything, right? Uh, <laughs> how many Spielbergs have we done over the years? This will be our fifth uh, official Spielberg. We have done four full episodes of uh, dedicated his films before uh, Jaws, Ready Player One, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and AI. And bonus point for uh, inclusion of uh, West Side Story in our best of uh, the year episode okay. last year. Yeah, well, well, as we know, those are all of Steven Spielberg's best films, the, the strongest <laughs> films he ever made. So we really don't need to like go back to Spielberg Especially well Ready ever Player again. One. Yeah, yes. I'm really glad we got Ready Player One in there. It's defensible. I've <laughs> rewatched it recently. Most of them are. It's well, yeah, it's. Uh, but what's the what's the indefensible? Uh, I mean, I saw Spielberg. Hook once and just never wanted to see it yeah. again. And, and people people will murder you for having I, that opinion. I know, I know, and it may just be a generational thing or something. But, but oh, it's right. very much a generational thing. That's that's definitely the kind of thing hey, where if you were born at the right moment, don't speak for my generation. Don't speak for my generation that way. We don't all like Hook. All right. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. It's required. It comes with uh, the badge, which you can put right below your official record keeper badge. Oh, that's where this Rufio tattoo came from. That's why. <laughs> that said, it is a little weird that we've never done Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm. We'll, I, we'll have to get to that at some point. Anything else? We could have if we did the Lost City, I guess. If We, we, we could have done a Lost City mm -hmm. Raiders pairing. Though I guess Romancing yeah, the Stone that would have been, been more appropriate stone. for that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, we well, really wanted that pairing, and uh, it just we're just not doing enough podcasts, guys. You you want to go to a three a week format instead? <laughs> no, 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 I don't. I like the rate we're at now. Scott, our scientists say we can. We shouldn't spend any time thinking about whether we should. <laughs> I try to think what I'd like to hit that we haven't yet. I guess Raiders would be way up there, but uh, I don't know. There's a lot of good ones. They usually lend themselves to discussion. Well, anyway, we're not talking about any of those Spielberg movies. Tasha, what are we talking about with this pairing? Well, this week, we're going to go back to the far off time of 1993, when dinosaurs roamed the multiplexes, or at least they roamed theaters playing Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park, an adaptation of Michael Crichton's novel about an attempt to open a dinosaur theme park that goes terribly awry. Then we'll fast forward to 2022, a time when dinosaurs are roaming the multiplex again, this time in the form of Jurassic World Dominion, the latest in the now six-film Jurassic series. Directed by Colin Trevorrow, it unites the original cast of Jurassic Park with the stars of Jurassic World and Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. So in this installment, we'll be talking about dinosaurs of the relatively recent past and the next, the dinosaurs of the present. We'll be right back after the break. Jurassic Park. We've made living biological attractions so astounding that they'll capture the imagination of the entire planet. The most phenomenal discovery of our time. How'd you do this? Becomes the greatest adventure of all time. Can I touch it? Sure. Universal Pictures presents. You feel that? Hold on to your butts. A Steven Spielberg film. Fences are failing all over the park. Yeah, that's nice. Gotta go. An adventure. Look out! Down! I can't get Jurassic Park back online. 65 million years in the making. For a film at least partly about chaos theory, Jurassic Park is a film in which seemingly every element performs a well-defined role exactly as planned. Early in the film, paleontologist Alan Grant, played by Sam Neill, describes a velociraptor to an unimpressed kid who insists they don't sound that scary. Then Alan describes in intense detail, with the aid of a fossil talon, what a raptor attack would be like. And that impresses the kid. And it impresses the viewers of the film who, if they haven't seen Jurassic Park before, might not know they're being set up. At the film's climax, the velociraptors will run amok and they'll be that much scarier because we were told exactly what to fear. Jurassic Park is adapted from a 1990 novel by Michael Crichton with a screenplay by Crichton and David Kep. Both film and novel have dinosaurs at their center, but also of the moment scientific ideas about genetic engineering, chaos theory, and evolutionary biology. Its high concept may have been what sold movie tickets, and before that, copies of the novel, but Jurassic Park never relied just on delivering on the promise of dinosaurs run amok. Paleontologist Grant and his partner Ellie Sattler, played by Laura Dern, and mathematician, sorry, chaotician Ian Malcolm, played by Jeff Goldblum, provide easy-to-understand explanations of the scientific concepts at the heart of the film, but also express the ethical issues raised by those concepts. It's a thrilling film with more than thrills on its mind. It's got him, though, thanks to breakthrough special effects. CGI wasn't entirely new to the movies in 1993. See Terminator 2's morphine effects, for instance, but they had never been used on this scale and with this much ambition. Jurassic Park mixes practical effects with computer imagery, but the computers were ultimately used more than planned. Hired to work on the film, stop-motion expert Phil Tippett quipped to Spielberg, 
guess I'm out of a job when he saw Spielberg's CGI plans. The director's reply, don't you mean extinct? Those effects still hold up beautifully. If anything, much of the CGI used in the rest of the 90s looked like a step back. But it's the careful construction of the film around the effects and the ideas they all serve that have made Jurassic Park so enduring. As in Jaws, Spielberg only slowly reveals what our heroes are up against. We glimpse part of a raptor early on and see evidence of a hungry T-Rex, but Jurassic Park doesn't reveal either in full until just the right moment. In the film's hands, we're all that kid, enthralled by a smart, terrifying bit of storytelling, unable to look away. It's chaos controlled by blockbuster filmmaking executed at the highest possible level. Still not clear on chaos. Oh, oh, it, it, it uh, simply uh, deals with uh, predictability and complex systems. The shorthand is the, the butterfly effect. A butterfly can flap its wings in Peking, and in Central Park, you get rain instead of sunshine. Why? <laughs> <laughs> did I go too fast? I, I go too fast. I did a flyby. No, give, give me that glass of water. We're going to conduct an experiment. It should be still. The car's bouncing up and down. But that's okay. It's just an example. Now, put your hand flat like a hieroglyphic. Now, let's say a drop of water falls in your hand. Which way is the drop going to roll off? Over which finger or over the thumb or the other side? Thumb. Let's see. Uh-huh. Okay. Right. Okay, now freeze your hand. Freeze your hand. Don't move. I'm going to do the same thing. Start with the same same place again. Right. Which way is going to roll off? Let's say back. Same way. Same way. Same back. Same way. <gasps> it changed. It changed. Why? Because tiny variations, uh, the, the orientation of the hairs on your hands. Hey, Alan, look at this. Um, the amount of blood distending your vessels, imperfections in the skin. Imperfections in the skin? Microscopic, microscopic. <laughs> and never repeat and vastly affect the outcome. That's one. Unpredictability. Okay, I've thrown out Jurassic Park as a kind of high water mark for 90s blockbuster filmmaking. Who is going to dissent? Uh, your silence. Not me. No. Cretaceous yeah. crickets. Who's going to be the, it's not that scary kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we need that kid. <laughs> I mean, he's just, I mean, he does this better than anybody else. He's just more talented. <laughs> you know, and it's like, there's no, as you said in the keynote, He's thought things through. Everything is planned. You know, this is not some sort of shoddy Jurassic Park-esque operation. This is, <laughs> you know, uh, which is kind of one of my favorite things about watching this movie, uh, re-watching this movie, is just noting what a shambles this thing is from the beginning. <laughs> like, it just, nothing goes right instantly. It's just like, they, they, I don't even know if it's the first moment where something goes wrong, but when they, when they're in the little ride to see how the how the park works and they're just able to push <laughs> to push themselves out of their seats and wander wander into the lab i mean you know there's so many little things like that before you even get to you know malfunctions in the park but anyway nothing goes wrong in the execution and, and i think you put a finger on it there with that anecdote about or that scene about sam neill and the kid kind of setting up the whole velociraptor thing it's just simple setup and payoff Great filmmakers kind of make it look easy, but it's not. I mean, because you see other films that don't do this, that don't, that aren't careful enough in kind of really setting expectations of of delivering payoffs to the things they set up, of just planting things that are gonna that are gonna work for you later on. I mean, th- these are really nuts and bolts that you know nobody does 
if they do it at all, they don't do it as well. They don't do it as elegantly. They don't do it with the same level of visual wit that, that's all over the, a, a movie like this. So, yeah, it's it's a very it's a high watermark. I can't think of too many um, '90s blockbusters that are better. And if you're really good, you don't notice it because it's like only the second time through you realize, oh, you're being told exactly what's happening with those raptors, you know. And like even before that scene with with Alan Grant and the kid, there's the very first scene of the movie, the opening scene. You know, shoot her, shoot her. <laughs> you, you know, where we see the transfer gone awry, and it, you know, we don't necessarily know that that's a raptor at that point in the film but like that sort of establishes the stakes on a like a visceral level and then a scene or two later here comes alan grant to kind of like explicate it on a you know a a different kind of visceral way you know but um it's it's like it shows us then it tells us and then it really shows us yeah and then you have uh ian malcolm rolling in to explain how it's all going to go wrong. But you've, you've seen from the very first uh, moment of the film that things are going to go wrong, that they mm-hmm. don't have everything under control, that they haven't planned for every contingency, and that just like the slightest slip up means people are going to die. Like, I don't know that I, I would agree that this film makes it look effortless because there are so many moving parts in this film. And you definitely get to a point where every time somebody tells you a, a factoid about dinosaurs, you're like, OK, I, that's going to come up again. As soon as <laughs> as soon as somebody starts uh, explaining what the, the little venom spitting uh, dinosaurs are, you're like, all right, well, we're going to see those uh, pretty soon. Eventually, There's, it's certainly going to come up again. And there are a bunch of things like that throughout the film. It's just like, hey, let me explain to you how X works or what Y is. And then, you know, like like clockwork, uh, 10 to 30 minutes later, somebody's getting their face bitten off by exactly that. Or, you know, things are breaking down in exactly that way. So eventually, when, like once you know what's coming, it comes across as one of those films where it, this is a long movie with a lot of stuff going on in it, but very little of it is wasted. And the stuff that could be cut and like would be cut by the the Harvey Weinsteins of the world all contributes to the flavor of the film. You know, the, the time that Hammond spends sitting and talking with Ellie over melting ice cream when everything is falling apart, like the film doesn't need that to operate. And people today would probably cut it as a bit of character business that doesn't move the story forward. But it's a great little bit of character development. It's a great little piece of mood in the middle of all of these chases and, you know, all of these giant roaring lizards where this man sits in the the literally melting, disintegrating ashes of his dream and mopes because he knows what's coming as the, the rest of the world finds out about it. There's a lot of time taken in this movie for people to experience downtime. And it just I, I, like thinking about the blockbusters of today versus like watching the moment where Alan Grant and the two kids that he did not want to be saddled with are sitting in a tree after a terrifying night of almost dying. And they take the time to appreciate and also not appreciate uh, a dinosaur eating out of the tree that they're in. Like that's that's a little bit of movie magic that we just don't see in blockbusters that and much tell anymore. Jokes. And they tell jokes. Do you think yeah, you saw us, Rex? <laughs> I love that joke. That's, that's not a bad joke. But but the fact that they like give the kid enough personality to actually tell that joke in that moment, I think is mm-hmm. just like a great little touch. 
the ice cream scene that you mentioned, I also like it as sort of the the final spared no expense moment for Hammond, where you know he he revisits that that line of his in a a much more rueful way. It does feel like a moment for that character in terms of coming to terms with what he's done. I like his history too. I mean, he's a, he's a showman. He's a kind of a huckster, mm-hmm. you know. And it oh, yeah, seems the like flea he's, circus. Yeah, he earnestly wants this this, this uh, you know dinosaur park, but it's still a terrible idea, you know. But but you know, people don't say no to people with money, and and that's that's kind of uh, part of the subtext of this film. I don't know that it is a terrible idea, though. That's that's one of the things that sat. <laughs> have you not seen six of these movies, Tasha? <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, so oh, here's the thing, though. Tasha's the BD Wong of this group. <laughs> uh, you know, if we just it'll it's going to work the seventh time, you guys. If we could just like tweak the science a little, I you know what? The answer is to make the dinosaurs bigger. <laughs> bigger and smarter. No, I, I mean, that's what people remember about the the Jurassic Park, Jurassic World movies is, you know, they're about hubris. They're about man playing God, about, you know, going to places that we shouldn't go. And they're about corporate overreach and like thinking about the, the commercial value of something, but not thinking about like the ethical, moral value of it or the, the practicality of it. But here, the reason that the park falls apart isn't because a bunch of idiots thought it would be a great idea to make dinosaurs bigger, smarter, and more aggressive. The reason it falls apart is because of one very selfish person just getting greedy and like selling out the entire concept of the park before it can even open. And I think that that's a very different theme. Like Ian's point about chaos and like all of his mumbo jumbo about like life finds a way does pay out in terms of the changes that have been made to the dinosaurs that allow them to reproduce. But in the end, the park doesn't fall apart because the dinosaurs can have babies. The park falls apart because an idiot turns off all of the security systems uh, in order to steal a bunch of the dinos. A greedy uh, idiot. <laughs> so it, like yeah, a don't... greedy, short-sighted, uh, mm-hmm. sloppy Wayne Knight playing the Wayne Knight role. With, with uh, a chip on his shoulder. Like... Which is... You, so you really, think it, you really think it doesn't fall apart without him? I think it does. I think that there's all sorts of evidence of stuff that they haven't planned for. Um, and yeah. like Genevieve pointed at it uh, very, very efficiently. The, the idea that you can just kind of get out of a ride and walk into their most secret labs and there's no security. The fact that all of their security depends on one guy, apparently. The fact that there's nothing to keep people from getting out of the moving Jeeps and just like walking up to the dinosaurs. Like there's plenty of evidence that a lot of this hasn't been thought through. But the basic idea of of cloning dinosaurs, I don't think that this movie necessarily comes down nearly as strongly as as the rest of the series does on the this is your fault for playing God kind of moral. I I think it eventually just kind of of comes down to like people are selfish and short sighted and you can't predict for that. Well, I think, though, in in the, the very simplified version of chaos theory presented in this film, which is the only version of chaos theory I can even begin to understand, there's always going to be something that goes wrong. And in this in this complex of a system, there's there's an element of unpredictability that could undo the whole thing. And if it wasn't Wayne Knight. Why do you hire Wayne Knight? Come on, guys. But but if it wasn't Wayne Knight's character, then, then, uh, then it's got to be it would be something else. Well, the character is just such a a cheap parody of a human being. It's I that that for me is maybe the one sour note in just this very effective, very crowd pleasing, like very efficient, but also personality ridden film. Is just this like 
you know, the same, he plays the exact same character in Space Jam, basically, as just like a living 3D live action cartoon. And he's no different here. And it's, it's kind of irritating. But I, I, th- I do think about other things that are wrong with the park, too. I mean, I, I mean, you know, just the fact that they have velociraptors at all. <laughs> There's no need for them to even have have them, other than it's like we can do it, so we're doing it. And then there's and then there's a very specific issue with the um, was it Triceratops who's sick because they because of the because of a, a plant that they've uh, include that they've sort of sloppily included in that I- environment that is making that animal sick over and over again. I mean, I think there there's that level of just chintziness to the whole operation you know this is you know if you know if you're gonna open a theme park around dinosaurs i mean you really have to think it through and and uh the part that gets thought through is the merchandising you know which which i think is kind of spielberg's clever little wink at himself or something of just like of having all of this branded jurassic park merchandise and all of that has been really you know thoughtfully designed and the entrances and the you know the logo and all that stuff but 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 when it comes down to you know the details that matter it's just like okay we can just we can do it we can have these dinosaurs and we can kind of reproduce this world but we're we're we're, gonna, we're not going to do it with a kind of rigor to even you know make it workable for a day <laughs> you know it's a disaster right away might have also been a little wink at his good friend uh, George Lucas who kind of made his career on merchandising the Star Wars films but yeah, oh, that like a, that, like that slow pan over the the gift shop and all of the stuff in it is one of the more acidic, one of the more hilariously acidic things in a movie mm-hmm. that's kind of full of, of judgments about humanity and all the ways that humanity sucks. Like dinosaurs are simple and they're, they're doing what they're doing. But, you know, humanity, you, you got to have a human in the mix to just like really mess everything up. That's my favorite line in the film, by the way, is and I think about it all the time is like they're animals. They just do what they do, you know, which is, <laughs> is the best explanation for, for dinosaur behavior you could possibly offer. I have a question about the sick triceratops, because I always assumed, as Scott said, that the triceratops was sick from eating the plants. That was Ellie's theory. But then, yeah. and then, of course, that leads to the scene with, you know, that's a, a really big pile of shit. You know, she's going through the droppings, but she never actually, like, like we see her not finding the plant in the droppings. And then I feel like it's just dropped after that. I think like, I saw one part of the movie that kind of feels like, a, like like you said, it's, like it's, it's been dropped, you know? It feels I, like it, there's a scene missing or something, you right. know, because like the storm's rolling in and we get, we got, you know, dino mayhem to get to, but... Does yeah. that not come up again in the sequels? Because I, I mean, I will confess that I have not seen the sequels since they came out. I and watched, it does seem very much like the kind of thing that's being left open for another story. I've watched all the recently because I was catching up with, with my daughter uh, before the new one came out. And no, I don't think it gets I, to my memory. And, you know, it's a lot of dinosaur movies to watch, but but it's I don't remember it being picked up at all. I also haven't read the book since shortly after seeing the movie for the first time. So it's possible that's a completed thought in the novel that doesn't get a payoff here. I I will confess that I thought that my attention had wandered, you know, that I'd I'd been like thinking about the big philosophical issues here and had missed a scene or a a moment of, of dialogue. I was curious about that, too, because a lot of attention is paid to it for something that doesn't seem to go anywhere meaningful. So we, we have found this film's one flaw, and it is the dinosaur poop scene. Okay, carry on. <laughs> no, nope, it's flaw. No, the way it's one flaw is Wayne Knight. I'm fine with the dinosaur scene. Because we, uh, we can all infer what's going on there. Like, maybe... 
maybe the the fact that they spend enough time on, well, if the dinosaur is eating this plant, you know, it should have these these buds in its poop. Like the fact that that doesn't really pay off means there's a mystery there that isn't unraveled. Mm-hmm. But we understand the gist of it, which is you pull, you know, animals that haven't been around for millions of years around and have them eat food that has evolved significantly that they haven't evolved along with like something's going to go wrong i'm i'm actually surprised that a lot more doesn't go wrong like in a completely different version of this film more patterned on war of the worlds than on westworld they all you know wayne knight sneezes on one of them and they all drop dead <laughs> I mean that happens often when you're around Wayne Knight. I mean Wayne um, Knight kind of gets sneezed on in this. Film. That's true, and very shortly <laughs> after that, he drops dead. Yep. Though though that scene reminds me of one of the kind of unremarked upon details that I really love in the movie, which is which is that you know when the as the storm rolls in, everyone people kind of split up, and you know Laura Dern is going to stick around you know with poop a little bit more and uh and while everybody else is going to go back into their into their safe little vehicles their little park vehicles and and laura dern makes it back to makes it back just fine to, to headquarters while the other people get kind of you know waylaid i i like that it's not it's not commented upon but it's there and um you know even though i think we we're, we anticipate that they're going to be the ones that are going to be stuck that they're going to be because they're they're, they're going to be out in the storm for longer so i don't know i like that uh we are not stuck in fact we're, we're deep in the middle of this conversation uh we have our hands deep in the middle of this conversation sorting through <laughs> for all the things we're going to get into the characters laura dern's character and other characters after a short break Over that rise there. Oh, Just God. keep. What is that? Tim. Tim, can you tell me what they are? The gala. Uh, uh, gala. Uh, gala mites. Are, are those meat eating? Uh, meatosauruses? Direction changes just like a flock of birds evading a predator. They're uh, <laughs> they're flocking this way. And we're back, Tasha. You were wanted to talk more about Laura Dern's character uh, beyond her uh, relationship with poop. So let's let, why don't we uh, <laughs> why don't we get into that? No, no, I definitely wanted to get into her relationship with poop. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a shitty role. <laughs> boo. Scott was, you know, calling out how exactly they they split the party and and how the mechanics of that worked. But for me, that scene is interesting because it puts her and Alan Grant, you know, noted paleontologist that everybody in the world seems to know, as we see in the later films, especially. It puts them on the same footing professionally. Like it puts them on the same level of like respect and. and knowledge and interest in their job the 90s were not a great era for women in blockbusters for the most part but you know here we have a movie where laura dern just like rolls her eyes at hammond's feeling Mm -hmm. that he should be the one to to go do a particularly dangerous mission because he's the man and she's like we'll talk about sexism and survival situations later and she just like (laughs) rolls her eyes and and walks off clapped at that moment by the way (laughs) 
<laughs> it's a good moment. And it's funnily enough, uh, this this movie is more progressive than the movie made in 2022 <laughs> about uh, women's roles and in survival situations. But, it, you know, it, everybody gets something to do in this movie to, uh, to some degree. Lord Ernst gets to like, like do science and she doesn't go to Grant and say, I'd like I need your backup on this or what's your thinking on this? Like she knows her field and she jumps into it like confidently and without question. And that just it feels so rare. Even in, in movies today, it feels rare. I ended up she spends a lot of time running and screaming in this movie in a kind of typical horror movie scream queen fashion. But there's another side to her, too. And I just I really admire the film for making the time to set her up as uh, like a, a scientist rather than somebody who we're all going to question why she's running around the marshes in high heels the whole time. And I like that characterization even more set alongside uh, Ian Malcolm's uh, characterization, who spends a large portion of the film injured and with his shirt open, you know, (laughs) Uh, which, you know, it's I don't want to ascribe too much intent to this as far as like switching up gender roles, because I don't think it's like that uh, pronounced, but it does feel kind of notable that Jeff Goldblum is kind of uh, reduced to eye candy role uh, here here and there. And, you know, his attempts to be heroic are smacked down by a Tyrannosaurus, uh, you know, early in the film. And then he's just kind of a, a liability for, for the rest of the film, you know, on the sidelines, kind of putting in his two cents, but not actually contributing all that much. That, that shot of him, you know, wounded and sweaty with his shirt open, giving the the camera bedroom eyes mm-hmm. has become just such a, an iconic meme out of this movie. I had completely forgotten the degree to which he's just a complete sleaze. Mm-hmm. Like he he starts hitting on Ellie pretty much the second he meets her. And in a really transparent, let let me illustrate uh, mathematica uh, formulas and principles by unnecessarily holding your hand and looking mm-hmm. deep into your eyes kind of Not way. Not just holding, caressing your hand. <laughs> and, you know, he, uh, he talks all of this stuff that sounds like slick and glib. He's referred to as a rock star, but he doesn't really have any specifics and he's not really saying much that couldn't be he's kind of a walking horoscope you know he talks a good game and he's right but he's right because what he's saying is a very simple thing you know life is chaotic and it's impossible to completely control all variables like that is not necessarily a scientific principle worthy of uh, like international worldwide renown so seeing him here and just seeing like how disdainful the film is of him, of his, you know, posturing and sneering, his his transparent lechery, his helplessness in the face of battle. And then, yeah, him kind of ending up in the uh, the role that used to be held by like a buxom blonde who might be tied to something in addition to being sweaty and having her shirt falling open. Yeah. It's funny to see like when he's talking about his exes and his many children, for instance, just like how much the film thinks he's just a complete sleazeball who should be laughed at. I, I will I say this though. He, I mean, that at all. No, I mean, his, <laughs> he, I point, Scott but, is a but, complete sleazeball that, that should be laughed at. I, I don't I, see I, it surprising. I, I that I'm kind of surprised by that interpretation of that character. I did not, I, I felt like he was kind of pretty solidly the voice of, of, of reason in that, 
in, in that situation and in, in giving us information that we needed to know and in talking about certain science, ethical principles and so, science that that uh, that we needed to understand and doing so in a kind of a fun quirky way i mean i i don't know i didn't i did not find him to be uh uh you know that much of a laughable boob of a human being i think but, he can uh, be both i don't think it really shies away from his sleaziness when it comes to, to ellie i think ellie is very you know canny and in, in, in navigating it although there there i do like that moment where Dern kind of looks up at sam neil like like a can you get me out of this kind of uh uh, <laughs> uh look uh but no i i think though i mean i think it takes this doomsaying very seriously which is something else i want to get into you know i this is a this is a a film that is not optimistic about most of the scientific concept it, it, it brings up i mean i do think ultimately what happens in the film endorses his view that you're not being humble before nature or life will find a way, but life finding a way is not necessarily like, you know, a, a successory style, uh, uh, sentiment. It, it means life might trample over you in, in the process. And uh, yeah, I, I do think he, they let him play that role because everything he says is dead on correct. So we're now almost 30 years out from this film you know i don't know that this really w- there's a direct thing with genetic engineering much less dinosaur resurrection to point to but okay. how do we feel about its treatment of the of those scientific principles and, and philosophical concepts around them i think the fact that creighton centers this on a piece of pseudoscience that sounds plausible that sounds reasonable and and real worldly that, that's what especially <laughs> that's what creighton's thing yeah, well, I mean, especially in uh, an era, one of the things that he he did also was like look at the science of the moment and, and project it a little bit forward. So, in an era where like genetic engineering was just starting to hit mainstream consciousness as something that that was being done, Creighton had a tendency to be very reactionary and alarmist. An awful lot of mm-hmm. his books are, uh, yes. you know. Uh, Rising sun disclosure. Except about yeah. climate change, which was which was which was not real, apparently, according to uh, Michael Crichton. No, but I mean, in that case, he was being uh, reactionary, and in a lot of his uh, stuff was also, you know, very xenophobic and right wing. And like, I see Rising Sun and his uh, climate change isn't real stuff is coming from the the exact same place of like uh, a very conservative xenophobic mindset. But here, you know, what he's what he's saying is what movies movies about scientific uh, innovations of any kind have been saying since the at least the 1950s, which is there's a new thing and it's going to kill us. Uh, still my, my <laughs> yeah. least favorite brand of horror movie. I wrote a whole piece about this for Polygon uh, for last Halloween. It's just like, it doesn't matter what the scientific innovation is. It could be like a new way of processing uh, pulp to make paper and somebody would come along and make a movie about how that's going to kill us all. So, you know, this is, this is the usual thing. But uh. like if he had just made this uh, a story about we used time travel to resurrect dinosaurs. I don't think it would have the same resonance. I don't think it would have grabbed people's imaginations in the same kind of way. The science seems just plausible enough to make this all seem like something we might actually have to reckon with in the future. And if not the idea of like finding ancient mosquitoes full of uh, ancient dinosaur blood, at least the idea of using like recombinant DNA technology to make something dinosaur-like for zoos because it would make money. 
Like, I think that's actually a, a plausible concern that, you know, genetic engineering is going to be used in ways that enrich companies and that aren't necessarily for for people's benefit. But I, I think the science here is important, both because it gives us a, a recognizable face for a real ethical quandary, and because it gives it an exciting face that has a lot of great big teeth that could eat people. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, we should also note, too, that, that, that Crichton was basically ripping himself off here, too, with West Westworld as well. I mean, this is the, the whole like, Westworld is let's build a theme park around realistic robots you know and, so, and westworld so was inspired just... by going to disney world and going to the hall of presidents which I, I just think you know if if it hadn't if he had just gone to get get a snow cone or something instead we wouldn't have westworld <laughs> we wouldn't have jurassic park you know? i'd recommend it over the going to the hall of presidents <laughs> would, we, would we have a movie about how like snow cone machines are going to develop to a point where they're going to kill us <laughs> <Yeah>. all <laughs> didn't, that, didn't that happen in maximum overdrive or, no, that was a soda machine. That was a soda, soda machine. machine, yeah. Jumping to, I mean, thinking of, about Crichton ripping himself off from Westworld because of the Hall of Presidents, he apparently, the the first version of the Jurassic Park novel was about a kid who goes to a dinosaur theme park and everything goes wrong. And apparently he wrote a draft of that and nobody liked it. And he ended up kind of recasting the whole story around adults. So like this could have looked a lot more like Westworld and a lot less like the, the form that we ended up getting it in, which I, I find kind of interesting. One th- other thing I noticed on this rewatch in relation to sort of its thoughts about science, and this is more in the sort of like technology than, you know, natural science genetics realm, but like Hammond it has this like sort of little fixation on the idea of automation. And in that scene, like you talked about uh, earlier, Tasha, between him and Ellie, as things are coming down, he has, you know, that moment where he's like, you know, we, we rely too much on, on automation. Well, you know, we'll get it right next time. And and like Nedry, uh, the, the Wayne Knight character like he was brought in to automate all these systems and that you know could you could point to that as sort of the you know what allowed this domino effect disaster to happen so i i found that interesting like from the perspective of today where you know we are are very comfortable letting machines run our lives and and our theme parks and the film obviously doesn't dig into it nearly to, uh, as much as it does to the ethics of genetic engineering. But it does feel sort of of a piece and also ironic, of, you know, that, that Hammond is fixated on, on this particular piece of, of technology as a problem uh, while engaging in this other aspect of scientific manipulation. Yeah, the idea that he thinks the solution to the park's problems is like less machinery and more people when we saw exactly how that went in the the opening segment mm-hmm. is kind of funny in and of itself. There's a lot to say about Hammond and I'd like to get into him. But like before we move on from that idea of machines are the problem, I think it's worth noting that. That, again, here is just another piece of, you know, technological alarmism. The problem here is that everything is in the hand of of one computer nerd, you know, one very stereotypical, like fat, sloppy, unsocialized, obnoxious. This is how we saw people who knew anything about computers in 1993, basically. And, you know, we're we're all still like that today. Like, if you touch a computer, that's what you look and act like. Uh, I'm sorry to have to be the one to tell you that. But it, the idea of, like, one person designing and running all of the computer systems in Jurassic Park, to me, looks less realistic and harder to buy 
uh, in this day and age than mm-hmm. right. bringing dinosaurs back from the past. It's just it's so implausible. You know, there'd be a team of 40 people working on that and it would be much harder for a Nedry to come in and shut everything down. But part of the alarmism here is the idea that computers are controlling too much and that computers are in the hands of people who understand them. And if you don't, then you're beholden to them and they can control you. And it's it's another bit of like xenophobic paranoia on Crichton's part. So we should talk, speaking of technology, we should talk about the effects. And I'm always struck, and I, I touched on this in my keynote, but like how good these effects looked next to like the next five years of CGI, you know? I mean, these, this is, yeah. this, these, yep. these hold up remarkably well to me. How about everybody else? Yeah, there's just maybe one or two shots of the T-Rex where you can really tell that it's a, like a rear screen projection thing. I think the mixing in of uh, practical effects, especially for the close-ups, mm-hmm. where you can really like feel when they're when they're hanging around the t- triceratops, the sick triceratops, you can really feel the texture and weight of that creature, and the fact that they're going back and forth between you know real physical creatures and and cg and using cg in the more more mobile parts and physical items in places where things can be still i think is really important but also i mean for as much love as the cg gets shout out to that triceratops puppet mm-hmm. yeah. which which breathes Puppets. and the, <laughs> the the eyes do all sorts of complicated things and like there's moisture in its mouth when it breathes like you can both feel what it would feel like for Alan Grant, like lying across its laboring rib cage and listening to its its lungs and what it would feel like to be like in front of it, like feeling its wet, sickly breath on you. Like that's a very visceral scene. And it's it's just great. It's a great piece of, uh, of animatronic puppet making. It's a really nice mix of the two. And, and like not to get ahead of ourselves, but I'll give this much credit to Jurassic World Dominion. There's a little bit of that in that as well. Just to echo what Tasha was saying, I think this is just a result of exceptionally good planning on the part of Spielberg and his team. And the, the thinking was like, what what will different types of effects accomplish? You know, what 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 effects does it make sense for for us to do? through cgi and what what affects through puppets what affects through you know uh, other more you know traditional forms um you know and it all has to do with has to do with with the distance from which we see some of these dinosaurs the speed is the the, the motion of, of the dinosaurs um uh you know and then of course these close-ups which which you know you, which you really can't do in cgi and you think about a lot of the mistakes that were made during that Era and, and mistakes that are made right now, <laughs> often more often than not, with CGI, is that is that filmmakers are not that thoughtful in terms of how they're used and when they're used and when you can kind of toggle back and forth between physical effects or, pra- or practical effects, I should say, and CGI effects. There's not a lot of thinking that goes into it, and so the seams end up showing on the digital parts of things, or things. there's a weightlessness to those scenes, but when you look at Jurassic Park and you get like a, you know, that money shot of Sam Neill and Laura Dern looking at those that you know, those dinosaurs for the first time and you hear that melodica cover in your head because it's just so freaking hilarious I mean, and that's all CGI and it's from a distance, it looks incredible It's see, just incredible. See, I was actually sitting here waiting to bring up the first Brachiosaurus shot as is one of the i assume pure cgi you're saying it looks bad it, I, no it, it does not look bad by any means and i think that the filmmaking in that scene around the dinosaur does 
does a lot to make it work. But, you know, we're talking about, you know, these things having a little weight. And that is one part where I like I could see the digital seams showing. And part Mm -hmm. of it was just like how other people in the scene so, okay, to, to like break it down a little, you know, we like see the uh, Brachiosaurus like lumbering up to a tree and it like stands up, it eats something off the tree and then comes down, it makes this big, big boom and everyone's like, whoa, you know, like they, sh- they shake a little. But it's like, I feel like I want, I would want to see the effect of that dinosaur's weight on the ground before that moment. Like, I feel like you would still feel this giant animal moving around. It's very, very small details. And again, not bad at all but you know i was watching this some high def transfer that you know did i think maybe throw into relief some of the earliness of of the cgi and again don't mind it at all but it was more noticeable in that scene for me than what i consider to be like the best cgi hybrid shot of the film which is the first full shot of the of the t-rex coming out of his pen and you know there's there's rain going on it's dark there's a lot more going on in the frame i think that maybe makes it a little easier to ignore those seams than in the brachiosaurus scene where it's just like it's on display it's like a painting that you're looking at that they're looking at you know we're supposed to be staring at it in awe and it is awesome you know again underlining i don't think it's bad but it did feel a little like oh yeah this is a 30 year old movie in that moment to me i think at the in the scenes where the dinosaurs are in the light we see it a little bit more just Mm -hmm. because today's version of those uh cg characters would involve a lot more shadows a lot more Mm -hmm. complicated shadow work And I I think you just don't see it as much with the T-Rex because it's night and Mm -hmm. you're supposed to have a lot of it obscured. And that's something we maybe see like less of, especially with this early CG stuff. I think the scene where Sam Neill and the kids get caught out in the middle of the field with the dinosaur herd uh, like charging around and and he's going on about how they're wheeling like a a flock of birds trying to Mm -hmm. escape a predator without realizing that means there's a predator nearby. Uh, I think all of that is, is done just pretty magnificently well Mm -hmm. in terms of the viscerality of it in terms of drawing your attention in a whole lot of different places um but also just like integrating them into the the movement and the the scenery and the the feel of the whole thing like that feels really realistic to me in a in a way that i think today is cg can't improve on a whole lot you know it uh it 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 feels like they're there to me which is not always the case with other cg of the time yeah i try to think of the next time i liked cg effects because i remember there's just things like congo after this they're just awful like the lava in congo it just just looks ridiculous i like i think it might be starship troopers maybe the lost world i mean there, there really is a rough period between the first Jurassic Park film and the second Jurassic Park film when, when it seemed like no one really knew what to do with this new technology. I mean, like Men in, well, Men in Black's 97 too. So it's like may, maybe like 1997 is, is when things <laughs> kind of, they kind of got their act together uh, in terms of how to use this. Well, it's also a slightly different thing, but Toy Story was, was two years later sure. too. And that is like pure animation, but it was definitely sort of a, a step up as far as like what you can do artistically with computers and film. 
Well, it was also very, very stylized. So, mm-hmm. you know, we weren't looking for, we weren't Realism. seeing things in the Uncali yeah. Valley the, the same kind of way. But then, you know, it was uh, only a few years after that that you get the Matrix and sure. just kind of like revolutionizing what computers can do to change how action works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Though I think we've hit a wall on everything, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, I... like animation, especially. I mean, that's a whole nother ball of wax, but it's just like we've hit some sort of hard ceiling, all that stuff, and it's not that impressive anymore you know and so so what ends up being impressive is just the way it's crafted and that's kind of what i you know i've been really like feasting on spielberg lately because i've been having to write a bunch of pieces about spielberg films it just and it's just it's just such old-fashioned craft or just some very specific things that spielberg does that enhances the effects you know just just from a pure storytelling standpoint or just from a framing standpoint you know whereas the actual technology itself that's what ends up being kind of limited Eh, every time i think that uh we're we're hitting a limit in film technology they come up with something new or a new way to use it or just making it cheaper you know the stuff that's being done with cg today on really really micro budget films um is pretty spectacular and if the big difference for the next 10 years is less about making even more realistic uh, cg and turns into like making it cheaper so more and more people can use it for like interesting idiosyncratic stories i'm fine with that but at the same time what animation is doing right now like animated films like the bad guys are more and more about like okay so how do you use this exact technology that we developed to make things hyper realistic and like full of of meaningful and realistic lighting and shadows and weight now how do you warp that to make it like cartoonier and more stylized and more individual and, and more idiosyncratic so, you know, we're we're just we're moving in different directions now with CG. It's not that we're not going forward. It's that we're kind of going orthogonally. It's always tempting to see John Hammond as kind of a filmmaking surrogate, too. You know, it is someone who's trying to to wrangle this, you know, incredible machinery. I mean, it works for Spielberg kind of falls apart uh, for Hammond, though. I mean, where, where do you I mean, where do you see Hammond fitting in, into all this? Well, I said I wanted to come back to him. And the reason for that is I think one of the reasons that this film just has more texture and weight than a lot of the other Jurassic movies to come is because of John Hammond. You know, as as I kind of brought up earlier, the series kind of came became defined by we're just going to keep making dinosaur special effects better. And these are all stories about corporate malfeasance and uh, evil and, and hubris and overreaching and playing God and the profit motive and, and blah, blah, blah. Like, it's like the people who wrote the next five Jurassic Park movies just had that Ian Malcolm quote about your scientists were so busy thinking about whether they could, they didn't think about whether they should, like running in their brains, and that defines it. But this movie is defined by John Hammond, who is an idealist. He's Santa Claus, you know? He's a, like, wrinkled man with a, a white beard and a twinkle in his eye who just kind of wants to make magic and and show people. He keeps talking about showing people something real. He cares about this uh, in a real way. And the fact that he's made mistakes and that he's short-sighted doesn't change the fact that he is kind of, he's kind of Steven Spielberg, you know? That patented Steven Spielberg moment where Grant and Ellie see the dinosaur for the first time. And they slowly stand up, staring off screen, gaping in wonder with their eyes wide open. That in the melodica theme plays. In the melodica (laughs) theme plays. That just that Spielbergian moment. He's the one that orchestrated that 
because he wants people to have that experience of wonder. And if there's one thing that seems to define Spielberg's taste in movies more than anything else, it's giving people that sense of wonder and kind of twigging people to it by having his characters respond that way to things. And it seems like that's that's what Hammond wants. His problem is that he didn't sweat the details enough and that he's not cynical enough. You know, he doesn't see Nedry coming because he doesn't think like Nedry. He doesn't want to engage with the lawyer or listen to him because he, do, he doesn't think like that. He's not driven by profits. He's driven by imagination. He's also a little bit Willy Wonka, you know, with Willy Wonka's uh, shortcomings and, and failings as well. He's just he wants to be the magic man from Happy Land. And the fact that he he doesn't realize like how terrible the kids he's invited to his factory are. I think that's kind of a question. I guess he's not not driven by profit either. I mean, he do, he he's got that he's got the merchandising part of it really well figured out. I don't you know that's one thing that doesn't go wrong. I mean, <laughs> like all of that all of that seems very calculated. Maybe that's this whole Spielberg thing too. I mean, it, it is a very you know one of the things that's really great about the movie is that is that you have this character who could easily be just a straight up villain uh you know for having created this greedily creating this park to make money without cutting corners etc but instead he's kind of this mix of like you know pt barnum and geppetto so <laughs> to be like, i mean i mean like Crichton that. called him the dark side of walt disney you know i mean that's mm, but, sure you know, yeah well but walt disney had i know uh, <laughs> <laughs> come on Crichton, do better um <laughs> I always think, think uh, Michael Crichton was very tall, <laughs> very tall. But what if he ha- what if he was tall and he also had what if he had really small arms too? Wouldn't that be interesting <laughs> if Michael Crichton was tall and had really small arms? <laughs> I think you're taking us down a, a road of speculation about the the near future that sounds like a little xenophobic and uh, reactionary, Scott. <laughs> Would this theoretically tiny armed Michael Crichton be able to see really well, or like only if things moved around him would he be able to detect them? <laughs> I don't know. I haven't, I haven't thought this through as, as well as you'd imagine. Well, they, they just say right what <laughs> you know. Like so maybe it's just like John Hammond. Yeah, maybe that's what's going on. Uh, this seems like a good place to wind things down. It's, we're entering, entering oh, the silly part of Jurassic Park. We're taking a short break. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this discussion uh, and, you know, the tiny arms that possibly Michael Crichton had or maybe normal-sized <laughs> arms. If anyone can report back. That'd be great. Uh, and anything else in the world of film, you can email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. If you want to share any responses with us and other listeners, we'll be back in a minute with some feedback. Yes, feedback's back and a preview of our next episode. Now it's time once again for feedback. We tried migrating this over to the Patreon page and which, you know, obviously you should still obviously go and support. Uh, it didn't really work. And, and I think we missed doing it. We missed, you know, the sort of quasi direct conversation with our listeners. Uh, so it's back here. Yay. We'll keep this installment brief, but if you'd like to share a question or comment, as we said before, you can email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. This is from a listener named JB who has a question on Twitter about Chippendale's Rescue Rangers related to Roger Rabbit. He writes, my only question regarding Chippendale's Rescue Rangers is Roger Rabbit an actor who started a movie called Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Or is Who Framed Roger Rabbit an account of actual events from the Chippendale universe? How deep does this meta hole go? I That is a really good question. I, I have no answer. Well, would anyone have any theories here? 
I do. And I really liked that uh, JB brought this up because in our conversation about uh, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, when Tasha brought up, like, this is all the same universe, right? Toward the end of the conversation, like, threw a wrench in that by saying, like, but wait, how do characters age in this universe? (laughs) Or, Or, you know, like the characters in Chippendale Rescue Rangers age. Uh, so how is Roger Rabbit in the 1990s or whatever the same age, presumably? I don't know how uh, Cartoon Rabbit's age, but, you know, he, he looks the same as he did in uh, the 1940s of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. But if that was a Roger Rabbit who starred in the 1988 film that we saw in uh, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, then it all works out. So I come down on the side of Roger Rabbit as an actor who starred in a movie called Who Framed Roger Rabbit within the Chippendale universe. Man, if that's true, though, he looks real good for for that many decades later. No, but that's what I'm saying is that he didn't he wasn't actually alive in the Roger Rabbit wasn't actually alive in the 1940s. He was alive in the 1980s, starring in a period film set in the 1940s. Do you want to know how long ago the 1980s <laughs> were, Genevieve? Do you, do you want to know how many they decades it's been? Right. But the glimpse we see of him in Chippendale Rescue Rangers is when the show was on the air in the like early 90s. Oh my God! Okay, you've wow. you done it. You done it, <laughs> Pollock. You've cracked it wide open. That makes sense. It's it would be interesting if we saw him uh, again, and he's like clearly forty years older. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe that's why he's so upbeat in that uh, that that moment. It's not that that's just his character. It's that like he's, he's just high. off a yeah. He's uh, riding high on a, a great big hit. Yeah. I like it. I think we're going to get more response about this. I think we may. <laughs> this may be a multi-part But also, we, we would love question. more substantial feedback. Not that not yes. that this isn't a great question. Oh, but great. now that feedback is back where it belongs on the normal show, we, we hope that you all will uh, send us your, your questions and comments. So Please. wait. I think people have opinions about Jurassic Park. <laughs> if Who Framed Roger Rabbit is a period <laughs> piece being made in the 1980s by actors, including Roger Rabbit then the cartoon being made at the beginning is a documentary about how cartoons are made in the Chip and Dale universe. Have we considered that? We're thinking this through. This, this is too much. Wait. This is too much. Oh. Wait, you got something? You, no. You got, you got an no, explanation? No, there's just little birds flying around my head. And, and I, I got nothing. <laughs> stars, Genevieve. We specifically said in this script, stars. Well... I'm going to say that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. (laughs) In our next episode, we'll look at Jurassic World Dominion and discuss the most important issue. Why is there no colon in its title? Uh, It will cover other stuff as well. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcast of choice. For ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, find us at Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week... Please keep in mind that we were so preoccupied about if we could do this podcast, we didn't stop to think if we should. Mm-hmm.